topics. I'd like to do a little recap of this morning. Both in the Pali Canon and in Nargajana, you have two separate meanings for emptiness, or two different but related meanings for emptiness. In the Pali Canon, it's either emptiness as a meditative dwelling, in which case it focuses on the issue of presence or absence of stress, and the emptiness is the absence of the stress in any particular state of meditation. And then this becomes a process that you continue following until you finally drop all fabrication in the mind. The second meaning, emptiness as an attribute of the phenomenon of experience, in this case it's emptiness of self or anything belonging to the self. And as we took apart the idea of self, we realized there are two dichotomies there between what's mine and what's not mine, or what's me and what's not me. And then the question of existence and non-existence. The purpose of this is to put away all questions about whether there's anything behind the experience that you're experiencing, or if there's anything sort of behind you watching the experience. So that you focus specifically, on, again, on questions of presence or absence of stress, and what you're doing to cause those things. So those are the two meanings of emptiness in the Pali Canon. In Argarjuna, there's, there's some similarities. Again, you have emptiness as a quality of the phenomenon of experience. In this case, it's the fact that everything is dependently co-arisen. And as a result, can't be adequate, adequately described as either existing, non-existing, both, or neither. And then emptiness as a state of mind that's totally free from reliance on views. And in this case, the first form of emptiness is used as a tool to get to the second one. In other words, you use the two things about the dependent co-arising. One is you use the fact of the analysis of where suffering comes from, and the, the main emphasis is on the fact that there's clinging. And if you learn to let go of the clinging, then you're free of suffering. And for Nagarjuna in particular, the clinging there is clinging to views about things based on that, whether or not they have an existence. And then secondly, the conventional level of emptiness functions in its general pattern, the general pattern of contingency between one part of uh, dependent co-arising and another. Because things are dependently or contingent on other things, they don't have any real essence of their own. You can't really say whether they're eternal, whether they're annihilated, whether they're existing, whether they're not existing. And as a result, the sort of the substructure of views has no place to, to land or no place to be assembled into larger views. As, as he says, you know, the purpose of this is to get away with all views. If you hold simply to a view of emptiness, okay, then you're incorrigible. There's no hope for you. So you use the conventional level of emptiness as a tool to get to the ultimate level. As I said, there are parallels. In some ways, what Nagarjuna is doing, he's taking one or two of the meanings from the Pali Canon and really stressing them at the emphasis, at, without emphasizing others. The Buddha is using the teaching on the lack of self in things as a way of letting go of prying loose your clinging towards those things. And in some cases he does this by using logical arguments. In other cases he does it by just pointing out to you that if you hold on to this thing, you're going to suffer. So if it's causing suffering, why hold on? 
So what Nagarjuna does is he focuses his emphasis on that issue of sort of taking and clinging apart through the process of logic and reasoning. And the specific type of clinging that he focuses on is clinging to views. So he's taking one or two elements out of the Pali Canon and giving them primary importance. What they have in common is um, the use of the image of the magic show. Remember we pointed out earlier that in the, in the canon the Buddha talks about seeing things as not having self, not having any real substance, and therefore it's just like a magic show, and so why should you put any in personal investment in the illusory things that come up in a magic show? And as for Nargarjuna, when he points out that you show that once you take apart the idea of inherent existence, or non-existence, or both or neither, then ideas about arising, passing away of things, any of the views that you may construct about things, he says, these he says are like the, the cities of the Gandharvas, like a magic show. And if you have to know something about Gandharvas, in Thai they're called Kuntan. Um, this is one of the lower levels of devas, they're kind of the teenagers of the deva world. <laughs> They like fast cars, they like sex, and they like music. <laughs> um, and they like to play tricks on people. And so again, the, the, the cities of the Gandharvas are just that. They're, they're just sort of illusory creations, palaces that trick people. And so both cases, once you see that something is illusory like this, then the, the inclination is to let go, not to put any personal investment in the, the construction of a view around this, or the construction of attachment around those things. So for both of them, that the image of the magic show gives you an idea of how they view the emptiness of things, that, um, or, the, or any notions that are built on clinging to things. It's a magic show because you want to let go because there's something more substantial. In this case, but the more substantial for for both of them is nirvana. It's interesting that. Mary Gardner makes one comment in his teaching that you know, he's been talking about dharmas and how dharmas are contingent, but he makes, up, he makes the point that there's no point where the Buddha ever taught nirvana as a dharma. It's something outside the whole analysis, outside of these views. And you look back in the Pali Canon and you can find a lot of passages to support him. You find a few where the Buddha actually talks about nirvana as a dharma, but there are a lot of other ones where he talks about you know, it's the end of all dharmas, or the letting go of all dharmas. So keep that image of the magic show in mind, because as we progress through a little bit more of what happened in later centuries, um, the role of the magic show changes. The image is kept, but then it's used for a different purpose, has a different valuation placed on it. So that's one part of what we're going to cover today. Before we move on, are there any questions on what I just said? Dharma here means, in this particular case, it's anything that arises in your experience. In the Pali Canon, they use the word Dharma in several ways. One, it's the Buddhist doctrine. Two, it's specific, specific elements of objects that arise and pass away. And they can be objects of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, or in any internal event. They can be qualities of mind that arise and pass away. Like the five hindrances are dharmas. Just so basically any phenomenon that's as it's directly experienced in and of itself. 
without placing any concepts on top of them. That's a big one. Um, reading in the Vinaya, you find there's another meaning for Dharma, and that's action. It gives the idea that the things that happen are not so much things happening as they're events happening or actions taking place. And I think both Nagarjuna and the Pali Canon would share that same that same view, same use of the term. I had a couple of questions. Um, one is, uh, in terms of Nargunjana's use of um, sort of dependent origination to deconstruct views, mm-hmm. I mean, outside of the fact that he focuses only on clinging to views and on logical mm-hmm. annihilation of them, um, does it differ substantially from the, the Buddha's use of dependent origination in the Brahmajala Sutta. Basically, he's taking one one tool out of the Buddha's toolbox. Okay. So, so substantially, it's it's similar There's to no that one. Difference, huh? Okay. And and in terms of the use of um, ultimate and conventional reality, mm-hmm. um, how does is is that different from uh, the mundane and the super mundane path? Very different. Um, to begin with, the Buddha himself never used the term conventional truth and ultimate truth. There's one or two passages in the canon where he's obviously taking on views that he does not normally condone, simply for the sake of an argument. And at, at the end of those, he will say, well, these are times when the Tathagata takes on the conventions of the world. But when he's the idea was then later on in the time of the Abhidharma, it was once they had decided that the Buddha really deep down inside felt there was no self, even though that was a question he refused to, to answer. It's like, okay, we know that you're refusing to answer in public, but maybe when you get behind the doors and you know, might <laughs> sort of let down whatever hair you have and, and talk about how there is no self. But once they had decided that that was the Buddha's teaching, then they were stuck with the fact that a lot of passages in the canon he's talking about there are four kinds of individuals, there are five kinds of individuals, and so on. And if there is no self, how could he talk about individuals like this? And that's when they came up with the idea that there were two separate levels of thought, levels of language. So when you talk, and in the Abhidharma, when you talk about these levels of language, that's what they are, the levels of speaking, talking about things. Now, when you're getting into the question of path about the mundane path and the super-mundane path, that's something different. That's talking about types of actions and the, and the, event, and the consequences that they lead to. Like on the mundane path, you would follow, you know, you'd be virtuous and you'd be generous, do a little bit of loving-kindness meditation for the sake of coming back and being reborn. Whereas on the transcendent path, you're actually taken to the deathless. So, so it's a different kind of distinction. Okay, let's move on. Then. <clears throat> okay. As I told you, there were several developments that happened both in and outside of Buddhism that had an effect on later teachings on emptiness. We've gone through one strand, which is a strand that comes from the Abhidharma or the Abhidhamma, which is kind of an analytical strand. There's another strand, which might be called a narrative strand, and that focuses on one big issue. The question is, 
Okay, the Buddha has, in many of his teachings, talks about past lives, future lives, the whole process of rebirth. And indicates, in some cases, he actually tells stories about his own past lives to teach lessons in, in the suttas and in the Vinaya. Um, two of them are pretty cool stories. There's one about a, an ox who can row, well, excuse me, can plow, say, a hundred rows in about five minutes. I mean, he's a really fast ox. <laughs> And the owner wants to show him off to the king. So he takes the ox to the king one day. And the king says, oh, okay, let's see him do his, do his stuff. And so the, the, owner starts, the owner starts yelling insults at the ox and saying, okay, you tailless one, you, you, know, you castrated thing, whatever, let's go. And the ox just stands there. <laughs> and of course, the man loses face in front of the king. And he goes back home and he asks the ox, why didn't you move? The ox said, why did you insult me in front of the king? And so he says, if you promise not to insult me, speak sweetly to me, then I'll do what you want me to. So they go back the next day and they, he says, oh, you know, oh, beautiful ox, oh, wonderful ox, you know, please, roll the, please plow the row. And the ox does it really fast, presses the king. In that particular lifetime, the Buddha was the ox. And, and the, the, the Dharma lesson there, of course, is you know, speak nicely to people if you want something out of them. <laughs> what? <laughs> Despite that. Well, some some people we had to teach with stories. Come on. Um, the other great Jataka tale in the Vinaya is of um, Prince Dikabu, and it's quite a long, involved story. It's almost like a novel. Um, what it comes down to is there's this king and queen, they're going to lose their kingdom. And so they slip out of the kingdom one night as the, as the enemy king is approaching. And they disguise themselves as beggars and then they go and they back into live in the capital city of the, the attacking king. And as long as they're in their disguise, they seem to be okay. Well, they have a son while they're disguised. And they realize that they're living in that, that capital city. It's a dangerous place and it's going to be especially dangerous for the son. So they have him go out and stay with friends out in the countryside. And occasionally he'll come back and forth and visit his parents in the city. Well, one day the, the parents are discovered. And so as they did back in those days, they shaved their heads, they bound their arms behind their back, and they marched them around the city to the sound of a harsh drum. And they're, they're going to be taken out and drawn and quartered. <coughs> What so happens that on that day that his parents are being marched around the city, Deka Wu decides to come visit his parents. So he comes into the city and what does he see? His parents being marched around, you know, ready to be executed. And so as the father comes near and he sees Deka Wu, he says, don't look too near and don't look too far. That's it. And then he gets dragged along and executed. So Deka Wu waits until that night. They placed guards around the place where the bodies were still lying, all drawn and quartered. Human beings can be really nasty, you know, <laughs> pulling people apart by, like that. And so he gets, he, he buys some alcohol and he gets the, the guards drunk. And when the guards are drunk, then he takes the various pieces of his parents and he puts them in a pyre and, and pile and cremates them. The king is on his palace roof and he sees, oh, somebody is in favor of these parents. It means I still have an enemy. But he doesn't know who it is. Well, Dikawu goes off into the, into the jungle and mourns his parents for a while. And then he comes back. And he tries to get a job in the stables of the elephants of the king. And he gets the job, looking after the elephants. And at night, one of his jobs is to play the flute for the elephants. 
elephants live well in those days. And even today, in, in Thailand, when they find an elephant that they think is, they, they, they call it an albino elephant, simply because it has a little patch of white here and a patch of white there. These are treated really, really well. Yeah. At any rate, Dikwu plays the flute for the elephants. Well, the king overhears the flute and he says, this is better than my own flute player. So he has the young men brought in and he, he plays the flute for the king in the evening. And to make a long story short, eventually Dikwu becomes his most trusted advisor. He gets up in the morning before the king goes to bed, after the king after the king at night. And when he, the king goes around in his chariot, Dikwu is his charioteer. Well, there's one day when they're out there with the, with the troops going into the forest, and Dikawu steers the chariot in such a way that the troops go one way, the chariot goes another way, and they're lost. And it's just the two of them out there in the forest, and the king says, I'm tired, it's time, I'd like to rest. And so he lies down, he puts his head in Dikawu's lap, and goes to sleep, as Dikawu stand guard. Well, Dikawu says, here's my chance, what I've been waiting for. So he pulls out his sword, and as soon as he pulls out his sword, he remembers his father's words, don't look too near and don't look too far. So he puts the sword back in. They start thinking some more about this king and what he did to his parents. Pulls the sword out again. Then he remembers his father's words, puts it back. He does this three times. After the third time, the king wakes up in a fright. He says, I just had this horrible nightmare that this prince, Dikawu, the son of the king and queen that I murdered, was after me. Prince Dikawu pulls out his sword again, grabs that king by the hair and says, do you know who I am? And the king begs for his life. And Dikawu says, no, you give me my life. And so the two of them vow to you know, protect each other's lives. And so then they get back in the chariot and go back to the palace. And the king says to his advisor, suppose we met up with this Prince Dikawu, what would you do? And some of them say, well, we'd cut off his ears first. And the others say, no, we'd cut off his nose first, then we'd kill him. And the others say, no, we'd cut off his ears and his nose, then we'd kill him. And then the king says, okay, this is Prince Dikawu standing over here. Don't touch him. Don't do anything at all. And then he turns to Deku and says, what did your father mean about this? Don't look too near and don't look too far. And he says, don't look too far meant don't carry old grudges. And don't look too near doesn't mean don't be too critical of the people right around you. And so that was what saved him. And so in that particular life, Prince Deku was the Buddha. Another example of his previous lifetimes. Well, these stories got people curious about what was the whole story of the Buddha's past lives. And a whole series of tales were put together. Many times there were older Indian tales. And they put together a whole series of stories taken from Indian folk tales and other stories in which the Buddha or some of his famous Arahant disciples become characters in these stories. Um, then the question arose, okay, if you want to be a Buddha rather than an Arahant, what's the difference in the path? I suppose you know, you've got this chance to be an arahant, but obviously the world needs more Buddhas. What would be the different paths? What's the difference between a Buddhist path and an arahant's path? And ultimately, the, the theory that came out was in sort of sorting through this collection of tales that there were certain perfections that were developed in the tales. And the different Buddhist sects that had developed in the centuries after the Buddha passed away came up with different lists. The two main lists, there were in the Sarvastivadins, they had six perfections. In the Theravada, they had ten perfections that were drawn out of the tales. The ten perfections in the Theravada tradition are these. Um, generosity, virtue, renunciation, discernment, effort or persistence, endurance, truth, de determination, um, 
goodwill and equanimity. Okay. That's the ten. Okay. Then the question is, well, these sound an awful lot like the qualities developed by an arhat. There's really not that much difference. So what's the difference? And eventually two answers developed. The first answer was that it was a quantitative difference. Basically, it was the same qualities that an arahant, arahant had to develop, but he had to do more of them. Like, you know, if an arahant you have to give X amount, then the Buddha would have to give three times that amount. Um, and then the practical question came up was, okay, suppose you've got this amount of perfection that a Buddha has to develop and this amount that an arahant has to develop. Suppose that you're on the way to becoming a Buddha and you reach this level, the arahant's perfections. What's to stop you from becoming an arahant? And the solution there was the vow you made to start out with. You make this vow, okay, I'm going to become a Buddha. And that will carry you through. It takes you past the Arahant level and will carry you up to the Buddha level. And for a while that seemed to satisfy everybody. In addition to tales about the Buddha's previous lifetimes, and most of the tales in the, in the Jatakas concern the Buddha when there was no other Buddha around. He sort of, he, if he even if he's a lay person in the tale or, a, or an animal in the tale, um, there's never a chance where the Buddha has to, gets the chance to talk to previous Buddhas or gets to do anything concerning previous Buddhas. He has to develop his perfections on his own. It's a long, arduous task. It's like reading The Lord of the Rings and he just keeps working and slugging and slugging and slugging away. And, um, <laughs> it's hard stuff and he has to do it alone a lot. Sometimes he does it with his friends, but each person has to develop his or her own perfections. That's the pattern of the Jatakas. Another pattern developed entails that they call, in Pali, they call Apadana, A-P-A-D-A-N-A. And in Sanskrit, they call Avadana, A-V-A-D-A-N-A. And the basic pattern of these tales is when the Buddha or, his previ- or the Arahant disciples gets to meet a Buddha in a previous dispensation and gets to perform a service to that Buddha. Um, some of the ones that stick in mind, the one that really sticks in my mind is Tardaniya. I understand there's a Dharma teacher who's named herself Tardaniya, or has been named Tardaniya. And the original Tardaniya was a turtle. <laughs> and there's one day when the Buddha of a previous aeon is having to walk across a stream and it's pretty deep, and, and this turtle is on this side of the stream, and the turtle volunteers, I'll carry you across. And so the turtle carries him across, and as a result of that good deed, then he becomes a deva, and from becoming a deva, and when he comes down to the human realm, he's either a king or a, a, an emperor, and eventually becomes an arahant named Taraniya, which means one to carry across. That's the typical pattern of these. Um, the Apadana stories had another... Um, had a theory that there's such a thing as a Buddha field. Now, the concept of a Buddha field developed over time. The original meaning of a Buddha field was kind of like the magnetic field around a Buddha. Or literally, it was a field in which you planted seeds of merit. The idea being that you know, giving, giving to an ordinary person will, is like planting a seed in ordinary soil. But if you put that seed in the soil of a Buddha field, you get lots of returns. A really good investment. And they were very clear about using this analogy, then the investment and the, and the return. And in the Apadanas, the, the pattern is this. You plant the seed of merit. Now, if you want that seed of merit to have a specific result, then you make a vow as well. 
saying, I want this to go either to becoming a Buddha or to becoming an Arahant with a particular talent. And some of the talents are, are some of the stories are really cool. Um, you read these stories, and the, part of this, the theory of the Buddha field is that this field that surrounds the Buddha does not only surround him as a person. If the Buddha passes away, his relics have the same field. And where are his relics now? They're in, in monuments. They're in what they call stupas or jetties in the monasteries. And you can imagine who was writing these stories about planting fields, <laughs> seeds, of, <laughs> seeds of merit in the fields surrounding the Buddha relics. Um, my feeling, about, I, I must admit, my personal feeling about the Abhidhanas, and I think it was pretty sleazy, um, sleazy body of literature here. I'm just really trying to push people into making a lot of merit by giving a lot. Now, they're kind enough to say that if you don't have any money to give, all you have to do is you know, bow to the Buddha. That counts as an act of service. But notice, notice the word service here. That's the word that's used all the way through. The Pali term is atigara. And this becomes the new paradigm for what Buddhist practice is all about. You perform service either to the Buddha personally or to his relics. And that's what sets you on the road to enlightenment. And the nature of the donation is going to determine special qualities that you have along the path. There's one story about a man who all he has is just three red lotuses. And so he offers these to the Buddha. And as a result, whenever he's born as a deva, he gets a red palace. And the, the deva maidens wear red garments and everything. And, um, so it's either the thing that you give. There's another case where one man finds a previous Buddha meditating under a tree, and so he sets lanterns around him for seven days and seven nights to keep the place really bright. And as a result, in this in this current lifetime, he was born as the, the monk Anuruta, who had the special talent of having the best eyesight, divine eyesight. He could see devas for you know universe after universe. Am I slipping again? My favorite stories are two. Because um, in mo- most of them, the pattern is you make the donation, you make your vow, the vow is confirmed, and then you have this really easy ride through samsara until you decide, okay, I've had enough. And then you suddenly get this feeling of sanwego, okay, I'm out of here. Enough. <laughs> The main emphasis here is not so much on Sanguega as Basada, the, 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 the feeling of conviction, the confidence in the Buddha. That's what carries you through the, all, those, the, all those many, many realms. At any rate, there are two stories where the ride is a little bumpy, and they're my favorite stories. Um, one, there's a <coughs> there was a man in the time of, I've forgotten the name of the particular Buddha, who hears that Buddha praising one of his students as being the, as the, the Arahant disciple with the nicest voice. Everyone hears his voice and they just fall in love with his voice. He says, I want that when I become an arahant. Okay? So he goes and he makes his bow to the Buddha. The Buddha confirms it. And on top of that, for the rest of his life, he, he feeds seven Dharma teaching monks every week. And who do you think wrote these texts? You know, it's the Dharma teaching monks. <laughs> At any rate, he does get to be reborn as a bird in one of his lifetimes. And this bird sees the Buddha of that aeon going for alms. And he's just so struck by how beautiful the Buddha is that he flies up and he plucks a mango and he comes fluttering up in front of the Buddha holding this mango. And so the Buddha puts out his bowl and the bird lands on the edge of the bowl and drops the mango into the bowl and then sings this beautiful song in praise of the Buddha. Okay, It's because of that song that he's going to get to be an, an arahant with a really nice voice. 
However, there's a hitch. In one of his later lifetimes, he becomes a king, and there's another Buddha that's been just has just passed away. And the people are so impressed with that Buddha that they decide they want to build a stupa that has no limit on how high it's going to be. And we're talking back in the days when if anybody was going to build anything really high, they had to get permission from the king. You didn't want to outbuild the king, right? And so the, Buddha, the king hears about this and he thinks, you know, you know, a stupa with an old limit in its height, that's pretty wasteful. So he puts a limit on its height. Well, he finally, after many, many lifetimes, he gets to be reborn as the Arahant. Lukudayan, Lakudayan, excuse me. And Lakudayan does have that beautiful voice that he wanted, but because of the jetty, the stupa with the limit, he's born as a dwarf. <laughs> so you have to be careful. You know? <laughs> the other story that I really like is the one of Mahagasapa's wife. And in the time of one of the Buddhas, she Mahagasapa is her husband and he builds this beautiful stupa in honor of that particular Buddha and she just, and he makes his vow that he wants to become an arahant and so she decides she's going to make a vow and become an arahant as well what she does is she takes gold bricks and she covers the stupa that he built so every lifetime after this and what's interesting about the apadana or avadana literature is that whatever sex you are when you make your vow you hold that sex all the way through and if you're a woman, when you make the vow, you're going to become a woman arahant. If you're a man, when you make the vow, you become a man arahant. Well, because of those beautiful gold bricks that she covered the stupa with, she's gorgeous every lifetime. After that, and just really, really good looking. And everybody who sees her just falls for her. Um, but there's one particular lifetime in which she makes a little slip. And this is the time of a particular private Buddha who one day, he's out for alms, and she, in those days, she would... If you, the monk was coming along the street, you would take his bowl and you would take it into your house and you would fill it with food and then you'd come out and you'd hand it back to the monk. Well, she takes his bowl and she puts it into the house, takes it into the house, and her stepsister, or excuse me, her sister-in-law makes some snide comment about how you know, she's wasting the family fortune on food on this for these monks. And so she, in a fit of pique, takes mud and puts it in the bowl. And then she realizes what she's done. So she takes it and she pours the mud out and she perfumes it and washes it out and puts perfumes in it and all in puts good, nice food in it, and then hands it to the, the private Buddha. Well, you don't mess with private Buddhas, even for a moment, okay? The next lifetime, she's, she's born, and she's still beautiful because of those gold bricks, but because of the mud, she has this foul body odor that nobody can stand. You know? <laughs> so fat good that her good looks do her. You know? <laughs> so finally, she, in order to overcome this, she takes perfumes and she bathes a stupa in the perfumes and that, that takes care of her body order. So, so you can imagine what kind of motive is going behind these stories. Um, let's get donations in for, the, for our stupas here. Okay, so this pre presents the same, the same picture that okay, there's a similar ser series of tales about the Buddha making his initial act of service to the Buddhas of the past and the future. Um, introduces the idea that the Buddha field is not just so much a field of merit around the Buddha, but there are actually different universes where there are Buddha fields. And so what this, the, our Buddha to be does is that he invites all the Buddhas, past and future, excuse me, past and present, from all the Buddha fields and all the universes to this imaginary palace that he's done. It's kind of an imaginary donation. It's like mandala offerings in Tibetan Buddhism. He builds this gorgeous palace made out of precious substances in his imagination and invites all the Buddhas from all the Buddha fields, feeds them, 
lets them rest for a while. Then after they've rested, then some of them meditate and some of them teach the Dharma, and then they all go home. So the pattern here is, again, an act of service to Buddhas of the past. Through that act of service, you get onto the path of awakening. And the type of service you give and the type of value you make determine what, what your awakening is going to, the special features of your awakening are going to be like. Okay, um, people who were more and more interested in the idea of becoming Buddhists eventually, however, found a problem. We start practicing along the path, to, you know, the path of meditation. And as I said, the previous idea was that it's simply a quantitatively different path. Okay, you make your vow, you practice, and all of a sudden, boom, you're an arahant. Now, from the point of view of someone who wants to become a Buddha, that's failure. Um, you've slipped off your path. Yeah. Of course, we nowadays would say, I should be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> but for the people who wanted to become Buddhas, and they said, this, something's got to be done here. And so they came up with, with several ideas. One was that um, you can't take the early canons as a guide to become a Buddha. The early canons were compiled by Arahants. What would they know of a Buddha's path? There must be other sources. And they started inducing states of concentration where they began to have visions of the Buddhas in these other Buddha fields who would give them advice on what kind of path to take. They would also start um, inducing what we nowadays would call channeled speech. These Buddhas would come in and they would speak through you and tell you what the, what the, what the particular path would be of a Buddha. And as you might imagine, all kinds of different answers started coming out. But one of the main issues was that, okay, it's not a quantitative difference in the, in the professions, it's qualitative. The path of the Buddha requires different types of perfections than the Arahant's path. And in particular, that the, the main difference is in, in the, the perfection of discernment. You can see where we're heading. We're heading to the perfection of discernment, the perfection of wisdom literature, Prajna Bhadamita. And for the Brajna Bhadamita, the ideal state of discernment for the Buddha to be, or, or Bodhisattva, is this. You, you induce a thought of bodhicitta, which is your first intention for awakening. And that bodhicitta in, in, excuse me, constitutes a state of what they call no-thoughtness. The mind has no thoughts at all. It's a state of pure, non-dual consciousness. And because there are no thoughts in this state of consciousness, there can be no thought of existence, no thought of non-existence, there can be no thought of dharmas arising or passing away. It's just this... In fact, the idea that dharmas and pass, arise and pass away, that for them that becomes simply words. The actual reality behind, behind these words, which they say are all mirages, dreams, illusions, is one, what they call suchness which is the same non-dual state of consciousness that underlies everything. There's no differentiation. All co for them, concepts have reality only as words and names. Okay. So you, you try to get your mind into the state and you try to course in this state, they call it, which means you just live in this state at all times. Now the way this state is to be induced in the, Braj in the early Brajnabhadamita suttas, it doesn't talk about emptiness at all. None, none of this Nagarjuna stuff, okay? In fact, Nagarjuna probably wasn't even alive by that time. They try to induce the state through a, through a state of devotion. You take the, suit, you take the, the, 
text in which the Brajnavaramita was written and you bow down to it. You sing its praises. Large passages in the Brajnavaramita, especially the, the very first version, which is called the Ashta, which is short for, it has 8,000 lines, is that you develop a, a, a state of intense devotion towards this idea of suchness, to the idea of not no thoughtness, and try to, through the power of your devotion and the single-mindedness of your devotion, induce that state of not thoughtness in yourself, in yourself as well. So, so far, nothing about emptiness. Emptiness comes in in a later version of the Brajnarabhadamita, which is the version in 25,000 lines. Um, excuse me, let me back up a minute while we're still with the Ashta. Um, for them, the idea of this having the mind in the state of no thoughtness was really ideal because, one, if you f- stay in this state, you're not going to become an Arahant for sure. Because arahants have to analyze the arising and passing away of dharmas. In this way, there's no dharmas arising or passing away. There's nothing to analyze. You stay there in that pure state of no thoughtness. And yet, because that is the true perfection of wisdom, everything you do while your mind is in that state multiplies the merit astronomically. I mean, it really leverages it up to a higher, way higher level. Because the whole point of being a bodhisattva is that you don't want to gain awakening in this lifetime. You've got to work on the merit, you've got to work on all the qualities and the perfections you have to develop so that they will yield awakening in a future lifetime when there's no Buddha, so you can become a Buddha and then carry on the teaching. So in the, in the Ashta, the 8,000 line version, what they call skill and means, or what we call tactical skill, is precisely this, that you have a state of pure mind, pure perception, or pure discernment, which on the one hand, doesn't let you become an arahant. On the other hand, it really helps you become a bodhisattva really fast, so you can um, get along, get on with your work. Okay. A later version of the Brahmanabhumita, called the twenty-five thousand line version, redefines the perfection of discernment. <coughs> it defines it as emptiness, and it says emptiness means two things. It means this, the state of what they call the non-arising of dharmas, which is picked up from the eight thousand line version. And it means the lack of any self-nature in dharmas. An idea picked up from Nagarjuna. Hmm? What? This one? No, he's got one of those devices. Is that, is that not working? How long ago did it go out? Oh, okay. I'd hate to think I was talking for this 40 minutes. Was <laughs> 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 reset? Okay. Okay. The perfection of... Uh, uh, wisdom or the perfection of discernment in 25,000 lines. It's kind of like taking the 8,000 line version. Suppose the 8,000 line version is a ham and cheese sandwich. And you open it up and you add more layers and you put it back together again. So you've got bits and pieces from the 8,000 line version but a lot of new stuff interleaved in, in, the, in between the layers here. The 25,000 25, line version says emptiness... Uh, 
Perfection of discernment is emptiness, and emptiness is the non-arising of dharmas and the lack of self-nature in dharmas. That's all it explains. This creates a problem, because those two teachings, the non-arising of dharmas from the 8,000-line version and the lack of self-nature, which you picked up from Nagarjuna, are two very different teachings. The 8,000-line version, the non-arising of dharmas, is a state that you get into through intense devotion intense sort of single-mindedness determination that you're going to stay on the bodhisattva path and not allowing yourself to think about dharmas at all. Whereas the teaching on happiness requires that you do an awful lot of analytical thinking to get to the state of no views. One. Two, the, t- the teaching on the non, non-self-nature or the non... What was it? Lack of self, lack of own nature in dharmas, depends on observing the fact that dharmas actually arise and pass away. Whereas in the teaching on the non-arising of dharmas, it says that the name tells you, dharmas don't arise, they don't pass away. It's all just an illusion. So you've got two very different teachings here. And the problem is how are you going to put the two of them together? One of the solutions came in a whole series of treatises that were written and with Nargarjuna's name on them to sort of solve the problem, in which they said, we're talking about two levels of reality here. The teachings on dharmas without any known nature arising and passing away, that's dharmas on the conventional level. But on the ultimate level, dharmas don't really arise and pass away. So they take the idea of the two truths and they define it and they put these two different teachings on emptiness together in that particular way. The problem here is is the teaching on the non-arising of dharmas is a teaching that's supposed to describe, it's a view of the true nature of reality. Nargarjuna would never accept that as an ultimate truth. Ultimate truth doesn't have views. Remember? So you've got another problem based on these writings.